for, for leading music. And at this point, when uh, Judy's ready, she's going to take the kids out the door to, to my left. And uh, <coughs> the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to um, Luke chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. It's a pretty long chapter. So I think we have, I don't know, one or two more weeks in there. Before we we go, I do want to uh, say thanks to uh, to my wife. I know I'm biased, but um, I'm allowed to be biased. But you know, for for many years, I've I've worked with the campers on mission and, and coordinated the events and all of that. And uh, it's a lot of work. Simone, you did a wonderful job, and I thank you for that. And uh, she took the lead this year and uh, did a great, great job. So I'm grateful for all that she has done and the fact that our community was blessed and we were able to share the gospel. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. So thank you for your hard work there. So we just got done singing a bunch of songs. Have you ever noticed how much music's in the Bible? You know, way back in Genesis, we see instruments being introduced into the Bible. And then, of course, in the book of Exodus, we see the very uh, famous, well-known hymn of Miriam uh, singing about the the deliverance as they came across the the Red Sea on dry land. And then she exalted in praise and thanksgiving. We are certainly reminded of the hymn of Hannah that she prayed as she uh, sought the Lord to have a child. And it goes all the way through. You know, the longest book of the Bible actually is the book of Psalms. bunch of songs, a bunch of music. And uh, so we see that, but Psalms isn't the only book of hymns in the Bible. We see the Song of Solomon in a variety of different places. In fact, many of the prophets um, uh, are, are written in poetry and perhaps even were, some of them were sung. But hymns and psalms are, are not exclusive to the Old Testament. When we get into the New Testament, we certainly see a number of hymns and psalms uh, written uh, or written and used in the Bible. In fact, we, we see that after the Passover meal, what did Jesus and his disciples do? They sang a hymn. And then, of course, we see uh, numerous songs written in the Bible or written in the New Testament about the coming of Christ and the person of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, a very famous passage of text that says, you know, have this mind in you uh, that Christ had in himself, that although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be... That whole section, uh, biblical scholars will, will inform us that that's a hymn. Uh, Colossians has numerous hymns uh, in them. And so we see in the New Testament that after the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, um, Christians began writing music for the church to be sung and to be proclaimed uh, regarding the person of Christ. And we certainly can't. Uh, neglect the book of Revelation. We often think of the book of Revelation as this rather dark, morose book of judgment, and perhaps in some cases it is, but have you ever noticed how many hymns and songs and, and, and songs of praise are in the book of Revelation? It's, a, it's all the way through. And so, again, um, we, we see that heaven is rejoicing over the victory of the Lamb and how Christ has risen from the dead, and that as a result of his resurrection from the dead, there is victory. And so we should not be surprised today as we come to the book of Luke that Luke has is filled with hymns. In fact, in the first two chapters of the book of Luke, of the book of Luke there are five hymns. So five hymns in the first two chapters. We looked at one last week, and it was I, told, I said it was the very first Christmas carol. And so, but today we come to um, Mary's hymn, and it, it's perhaps one of the most famous songs in all of the Bible. And uh, it is also a song of great victory. You, you should note that many times these hymns or these psalms were written in response to God's great deliverance or to a, a mighty work or a great deed that God has done. And we're certainly going to see that today, that Mary is celebrating, giving praise and thanks and rejoicing because God has done and acted wondrously and beyond um, compare. And so... Uh, our text today in verses 46 through 55, the majority of it is a song. Now, here's, let me give you a quick rundown of, of what this song is about. 
in this hymn, one of the main themes that we are going to see is the theme of reversal. In other words, there is this reversal of the natural order. What I'm trying to say here is that through the coming of Jesus, um, a reversal comes about that it that the course of humanity is put right. That the course of humanity is going one way. But with the coming of Messiah, all of that changes and all of that goes back and reverses and goes back to the way God has wanted it to be. And I'll unpack some of those ideas. But this idea of reversal is a key thing. There are a number of key things in this text. And so let me just qualify a few things. This is one of those passages of the text that preachers must love. Because there is... Well, we both love it and we wrestle with it as well. We love it because there's so much material to draw from. This, it's a fascinating passage text. And we also wrestle with it because there's so much information and we can't get it all done in one sermon. So, um, anyways, I taught on this in uh, December uh, in one of the Christmas messages. So, if you want to hear a second sermon on that, go back to December 2015, and there is a message there. But today what I want to do is I want to take us a little bit deeper. Um, we really focused on the attributes of God revealed in this passage of text. Today we're going to go just a little bit deeper than that. And we want to look at this theme of reversal. Now, here's just by way of preview. This is where I hope to go today. And what we are going to see is that we are seeing that this is a praise to God by Mary regarding his treatment of her and how God has treated the righteous through the ages and will vindicate them in the future. So that's a really long statement. I think I put it in your notes there. That is a praise to God by Mary regarding his treatment of her and how God has treated the righteous through the ages. All right. So it is Mary seeing that God has done great things in her life. So she praises God, but she also recalls all the great things that God has done through history and all the great things that God is going to do in the future. And for that, she sings praise. So then the next thing I, I kind of work with and think about is, what does this have to do with you and me? What is the need for the church in this particular hymn? Other than it's a beautiful hymn. Well, one of the things I noticed, and perhaps we'll put this down as the need, is that Mary has this really incredible understanding of how God is working in history. And how God is working His sovereign plan in history, and how by His grace she has included, He has included her in the plan. And as a result of being included by grace in God's plan of redemption, she shouts out this hymn of praise. And I thought, well, there's a great, I think that's a great application for us. That is, that we are to be aware of what God is doing in history and how he has called us by his grace to participate with him in the plan that he is working out. And what a great cause of rejoicing. Did you know that God is going to, God wants to use you and me in his plan to bring about his purposes? And that's just incredible because I look at my frailties and I look at my weaknesses and, and I think to myself, really, you could have gotten somebody a whole lot better. Is this, you're kind of scraping the bottom here. Not that I'm telling you what to do, I'm just saying. And maybe you feel the same way. And then I read, well, God uses the foolish things to confound the wise and say, well, that don't make sense. But what a great cause of rejoicing that God would actually include us in his working out of his plans. So let's go ahead. Let's, let's read our text today and uh, just go with it. You ready? All right. Well, that was an enthusiastic yes. Amen. I'm glad to hear that. So, All right. Verse 46. <laughs> 146, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble, those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Our Father, we come before you this day, and we pray, Lord God, that you would implant your word upon our hearts, Lord God, and that you would open our minds and our spirits, Lord God, to hear what you would have to say. I pray, Father God, that you would protect me from myself this day, and that I would be enabled, Lord God, to speak your word in truth, and that I would be faithful, Lord God, to the words that you have given to us, Father God, and I pray that by your Holy Spirit that we would be enlightened and illumined. Lord God, as we come and hear your gracious words, and we ask these things by the mercies of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I've divided this text into two very simple parts. There's an individual praise, and there's a, a, a corporate praise. And so, it begins with this. My soul doth magnify the Lord. I think we need to move uh, forward one or two. And there we go. So, my soul doth magnify the Lord. I kind of picked up the King James because I think that's just beautiful here. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And just a quick interpretive point here. And that spirit and soul here are being used synonymously. So, basically what she's saying is from my innermost being, from that immaterial part of me, that part that cries out to God, from my deepest, most intimate part of me, I am crying out this song of personal praise. And what does she cry out? Well, the first part of this hymn is one of glorifying God. And I guess that's a great place to start, isn't it? When we praise God, let's start with God. And Mary does just that. This is a, a passage of text, this is a hymn that is so well entrenched in Scripture. Mary, though she is a young girl from all that we can, can glean, a rather young girl, and yet she has this incredible command of the scriptures. And and so from this she she from her very innermost being comes this personal praise and she begins with God as the focus and she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my my soul magnifies the Lord. This idea, and we, we have to think our, our, to ourselves, that what does it mean to magnify the Lord? What well, magnifies to make big? I don't know how else to define it. I think that's a pretty good one. Make big. So she makes God the prominent feature of what she's about to say. God is the center. In other words, all the spotlights, all of the, uh, all of the focus now is upon God, not upon her, not upon anything else, but upon the great God. And so her soul magnifies, makes him great. He is the focus. And with her words, and then she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When we extol the Lord or we magnify the Lord, we do a couple of different things. First of all, we make him great. We make him prominent. We make him the center of of our praise. We make him the center of what it is we're doing. But it is also imperative that we portray him accurately. And what we are going to see is Mary portrays the Lord accurately. So when we magnify and make him great, we are not only glorifying him, making his name great, but we are displaying him as he truly is. There's a lot of people who talk about God, but they don't talk about him accurately or precisely. And we end up with all sorts of strange ideas about who God is. So my soul does magnify the Lord. I make his name great. And then here is this very interesting phrase for he, for, uh, this is a transition now, here's the reason why I'm praising God, because he's looked at the humblest state of his servant. One of the great characteristics we find of Mary is the humility that she has. And humility, let's spend a few moments talking about defining what humility is and isn't, because oftentimes humility is one of those characteristics or attributes that would be despised by the world, and it's despised by the world because it's often confused with willful, with willful self-disparagement. In other words, oh, I'm just a nobody, I'm nothing. That's not humility. Sometimes I might even say that that's pride. 
Oh, I'm nobody. I can't do anything. That's not biblical humility. That's not what we're talking about here. Biblical humility, rather, springs from the conviction that we are humans made out of dust by a great and powerful God. And that while we are but, while we are limited and finite and frail, God, who is infinite and all-powerful and mighty, would grace us with his favor. It is saying that I know who I am. And God has raised me up and called me his own. On what basis? On the basis of his gracious mercies. And Mary realizes, who am I? And we saw that uh, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago. We saw Mary saying, who am I? Who am I that you would bestow this favor upon me? She is the recipient of God's blessing. She is the recipient of God's grace. And she wonders, who am I? I'm just a young girl in a podunk town of Nazareth from whom you know, no good thing comes. And God would look upon me and say, Mary, I'm going to put my holy the Son of God in you and you will bear him and you will give birth to the Messiah and you will raise him. And she's like, really? On what grounds? We see this in Elizabeth as well. Elizabeth is saying, well, who am I that I would bear the forerunner of the Messiah? Who are we, Mary and Elizabeth, that the, that, that the God of heaven would use us to bring about his long-promised Messiah from Genesis 3.15 We've been hearing about a Messiah. We've been hearing about a Messiah, a Savior, who's going to bear our sins. And we've been thinking that He's going to come. We've been believing He's going to come. And now God says, yeah, He's going to come, and I'm using you to do it. Really? That's an amazing truth. Out of all the peoples in the world, you're going to use me. This is the humility that we see in Mary. That is, it is it springs forth from a conviction that He is God and we are not, and yet this great God would choose to use us to accomplish His purposes and plans. Augustine said this, he had said that, quote, if you ask me what is the first precept of Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. And we see this because he says that I rejoice in God my Savior. And this is a phrase or this is a statement of humility. Because in order to, need, to, to state that you are in need of a Savior is to state that you have a need. Which requires that I am not self-sufficient. I need some help in this. To say that I need a Savior is to say that I, I can't do this on my own. It is an act of humility and it is an act of bowing the knee of saying, you know what, I'm not fit to do this. I'm not capable of doing this. In fact, I would probably say that perhaps humility may be one of the great stumbling blocks as to why people don't come to know Christ. Because it's like, well, I, I kind of got this thing figured out. I'll work it out. I can do it on my own. So, you know, if I'm Driving along, me and Simone, and we get lost. And she says, why don't you pull over and ask that guy for directions? Amen. Amen. Well, there's a couple of responses. One response is, well, you know, we are kind of lost, and that guy does look local. I'm going to ask him for help. I am admitting that I am lost and I need help. That's one response. The right response. There's a couple other responses. There's another response saying, we're not lost. I know exactly where I'm going. I'm just taking the scenic route. I know that if I go right here and then left down there and I keep traveling in this direction, I know we're going to get where we... We are not lost. I know where I'm going. Well, 
And the third response is, yeah, I know we're lost, but I can figure it out all by myself. I think I don't need to stop and ask that individual where we're going. I'm pretty certain that while I am lost, I can figure this out. I'll just retrace my steps or something. And these are some of the responses to the gospel. The right response is to admit, I need a Savior. I am lost. Too many people say, well, perhaps I am a little bit lost. i got some problems, but I can figure it out. I'll work it out. The worst response is the denial of even being lost in the first place. I don't need a Savior because I'm not lost. I don't need directions because I know exactly what I'm doing and exactly where I'm going. So be quiet, sit in your seat, and let me steer the ship. And so Mary, in her humility, rejoices in God, her Savior. In other words, she realizes that there is a great need for a Savior. And I would, I would implore you today that if you have never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, let me tell you, you are lost. The natural man is lost. The best thing you can do is stop the vehicle, get out, and ask the Lord to rescue you from your condition. So she has a need to be saved. She, and she confesses the reality of needing a Savior. And then we see the first hint of a reversal. That is, from behold, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. From this time forth, from now on, from this time forth, I'll put in your notes, this is Lukeism. We'll see this phrase periodically through the book of Luke. And whenever Luke uses this phrase from this point on or from now on, um, this is Luke indicating to us that a major change is taking place. There's a significant change. And so from now on, she's saying, things are going to be different. I rejoice in God, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has looked upon me, his humble servant. Who am I that he would work through me? And now from behold, all generations will call me blessed. From now on, things are going to be different. Things are not going to be the same. Because of God's gracious attitude toward me, I will never, ever be the same. The whole order of the world is now going to change. My whole life is now going to be completely different from being a nobody and a nothing from Nazareth. All generations, not just this generation, all generations are going to consider me in high regard. They're going to consider me blessed. They're going to see that God has worked through an individual like me from now on. Instead of being a humble nobody, I am going to be known as a recipient of God's grace and mercy. So we see this first reversal begin to take shape. We should note how she speaks of the Lord and the names that she gives to the Lord. First of all, she calls him the Mighty One in verse 49. And there are certainly many Old Testament references that picture God the mighty one, basically picturing God as the one who is able to accomplish that which is unaccomplishable, that God is able to do the undoable, that God is able to make possible what is impossible. God does impossible things. That's what he does. In the context here, it is not that he is just mighty, that he is able to part um, red seas and cause people to pass on dry land. It's not that he is able to... um, bring forth a king or any of these things. The the impossible thing that God does is he brings forth a Messiah in the womb of Mary. This is the mighty God. This is what God does. Oh, God parts Red Seas. God rains plagues upon people. God does all of these things. But here is something amazing, something we've never seen, something completely unheard of, that God would take a person like Mary who has never had an intimate relationship with a man and create life in her. Not just any life. The very Son of God. Oh, He is a mighty God. That is an impossible thing. It doesn't happen. But God is the mighty one. Here's the other thing God is. She says, and holy is his name. Certainly we are reminded of the Lord's Prayer where we read 
Our Father, the one in heaven, let your name be holy. Let your name be hallowed. God's name is holy. And when we speak about God being holy, let us understand accurately what we mean by this. Oftentimes we relate holiness to purity, and there is always a purity aspect to holiness. All right? But that's not its primary it's not the primary aspect of holiness. The primary aspect of holiness is separateness. Or as I put up here, God is other. I love that phrase. I forgot where I heard it, but I didn't make it up. Somebody else said it. But God is other. That is, he's not like other ideas or thoughts or gods or philosophies or other wisdom. God is other. In other words, we have a holy God, we have a powerful God who is other, and that is, He displays His powers that the God and the wisdom of this age cannot. In other words, it is not through the wisdom of the wise that, the, that, heals the, that will heal broken humanity. It is not through the wisdom of the wise that broken humanity is going to be brought whole. And this idea has been debunked over and over again, but we keep falling for it during enlightenment. Everybody thought, well, through scientific discovery, we are going to heal all of our social woes. And certainly many great things. The, 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 the byproduct of much of that has been medical care, which is great. Much better. Transportation, communication, all of these things. We have more ways to communicate, but I don't think we're reaching one another. You see, and, and so oftentimes people will say, well, what we need is we just need more knowledge. If we had more education, if we had more insight, then we would be able to heal these things. I'm not saying that those aren't important things, but they, in the wisdom of this age, will never heal what is broken in humanity. And so we can exalt such things. But God is other. He's not like the wisdom of this age. He's other. That which is broken in mankind will not be solved by philosophical considerations. As wise as guys like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato were, all of their wisdom will not heal what's broken in humanity. The problem, the problem is, is you're looking for a rational solution to a spiritual problem. What you need is you need a God who is other. And God is not only mighty, he is other. Perhaps we might bring salvation then through consumption, experience, or pleasure. People say, you want to be satisfied? Just keep buying more stuff. That'll make you happy. I think we've kind of run that course, but that was really big in the 80s. Just buy more stuff. Get more things. Have more experiences. Enjoy life more. More pleasure. Then you're going to be happy. That will solve what's broken inside of you. And we find then that hedonism just brings you to the same desperate place. And so, in the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this age cannot solve what is broken in us. And what is necessary for us is that we have a God who is mighty. That is, He is powerful. He can do the impossible. And He is other. That is, He is distinct. And He is separate. He is not like all of these other things. And so, Mary begins her praise with this. This is a response to grace. She has been We've heard that she has been graced by God, and so now she exalts and prays, and she makes much of God. And praise is appropriate for those who have experienced grace. Have you experienced grace? That praise is appropriate. Well, now we, we move along here, and we'll kind of breeze through these next few paths, these next few texts. But a couple of things I want to point out, that the, the subject matter shifts you will notice how Mary says in the beginning, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, speaking of her, um, will call me blessed. But now we see, in verse 50 and following, that his mercy is towards those who fear him. He, um, 
and he um, has exalted um, or he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away is up to serve in Israel. And so now what's going on is we have moved away from personal um, exaltation. She is not talking about the benefits that she has received, but now she moves along and she talks about the benefits that her son is going to bring to the world at large. Yes, the coming of the Son of God is going to bless me, has blessed me um, amazingly. I am the recipient of grace, but I am not the sole recipient of grace. Rather, these, this, this working of God to bring about his Savior is for the blessing and for the benefit of many. So we move from the personal to the corporate. You see that? Sometimes pronouns are important. We see a shift in pronouns from first person singular to um, third person plural. All right, now we run into a rather difficult and challenging interpretive issue, and we have to deal with it before we can move along. So I'm going to get into some techie stuff, okay? You ready? Everybody get awake here. I'm glad we have a church that doesn't mind if we do this, because one of the things they tell you in preacher school is never do what I'm about to do. (laughs) Yeah, so it reminds me you're getting ready ready to hike across the Grand Canyon, and right when you're getting ready to go, you get like 50 feet down, 20 feet down, there's this big sign. And it basically says, don't do what you're about to do. <laughs> and we go, oh, ha, look at that sign. And we go about doing it. Anyways, here we go. I'm about to do what I'm not supposed to do. But we have a great church that loves this, that, I don't know, seems to love this stuff. So how do we interpret this? Because she says, look at what she says. She says, for... God has shown his strength. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of his heart. He's brought down mighty men from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich have been sent away empty-handed. So, so let's just stop there. This is talking about what God has done. That God has scattered the proud, and God has brought down the, the arrogant, and he has lifted up the humble. But wait a second. I don't know if you've noticed, but Rome is still in control. And the humble are still being oppressed and there are still many hungry. So how is it then that Mary can speak of these events as though they're occurring, that they have been done? This is a problem. Either, and there are a number of solutions. I'll give you the right one. I won't give you all the, all the other ones, but I'll give you, I think this one is, is, is the best one. So how do we understand this idea that she's speaking of events that have yet to occur, but she's speaking of them as though they have already occurred? When God, I mean, talking about injustice no longer happening. Well, I hate to inform you, but John the Baptist gets cruelly murdered by an unjust ruler. Oh, and by the way, her own son is going to be falsely accused and unjustly murdered. So how is it that injustice is being done away with? Well, that's a problem. But those of us who are diligent to read Scripture find that it's not so difficult. In fact, we will, read this, we will understand the Scripture, interpret Scripture, and this is what Bible students would call the prophetic perfect tense. All right? I, I, I just lost all of you, but let's talk a little bit about this. Um, everybody knows there are verb tenses, past, present, future, and all of that stuff. But this is what we might refer to as the prophetic perfect. What that simply means is that in the prophetic perfect, we talk about events that have yet to occur as though they already have occurred. In other words, they are so certain to happen, we can speak of them as already having happened. Does that make sense? All right. It's all over the Bible. I gave you a few references. I'll just give you two key examples. The first one, look at this. Genesis 15:18. So I'll give you both the Old Testament and New Testament so that we have some balance here. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Really? To your descendants? He doesn't have any descendants yet. I have given this land. So this is what we would call a prophetic perfect. I am speaking of something that's going to happen in the future, but I'm speaking of it as though it has already occurred. In other words, it is so certain that it's going to happen that I can speak of it as being a done deal. That's what we mean. Maybe one of the most famous passages of the, this 
idea is in Romans 8.30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, here's what we've got. We've got... We've got those who he called to justified. Notice, everybody who's called is justified. There are no unjustified called people. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, we're sitting in a church with people who have been justified by grace through faith. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been justified. But here's the problem. There ain't one of you who's been glorified. But look at that. He also glorified. Past tense. In fact, I would go ahead and say, make it even bolder, there is nobody but one, nobody who has been glorified. If you die today, you are still not glorified. There's only one who's been glorified, and that's Christ. But he is the first fruits of all those who will be glorified. In other words, it is so certain. If the called are justified, and the justified are glorified, let's just go ahead and talk about it as a, an already done deal. This is an amazing truth. This is, I believe, where Mary is going with with her hymn. That this is so certain, this reversal, this reversal of the proud are going to be put in their place and injustice is going to be done away with. Why? Because of the coming of the Son of God, because of the coming of the Messiah, these things that are still yet to happen, even though my son isn't even born yet, these things are so certain that I will just go ahead and refer to them as a done deal. You guys play, you know, schoolyard sports, right? Like pick up basketball or something, right? And I play pick up hockey games and things like that, right? So we divide up our teams, and these guys—I don't know about—I don't know about the ladies, but guys. Somebody that are you going to win? <laughs> oh, we've already beaten them. <laughs> we don't know that, but we're using the pathetic perfect. You're going to win the game. They've already lost. They've already lost. We haven't even played the game. So we're actually, that's not arrogant. That's speaking in the prophetic perfect. <laughs> Man, we can sanctify anything, can't we? So this is what's, this is what's going on. So not, it's just a quick summary of this kind of techie thing. Is that the coming of the Son of God has reversed the course of humanity to the degree that we can speak of His future ultimate victory as a current reality. That should give us great hope and a cause for praise, especially during this election season, which is really discouraging. And we wonder, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? This world is going to, you know, in a handbasket. I don't know what to do. Let me tell you what you do. You focus upon the Christ who has already won the victory and the fact that I don't know what's going to happen to this country and to this world. All I know is that Messiah has come. He has died. He has risen from the dead and He is coming again. And the, all of the things that He has set in motion are an absolute certainty. You can bank on it. Regardless of what happens, this the society can fall down around us. I'm not saying it will be easy for us to get through a, uh, a culture that is deteriorating and dilapidated and, and crumbling. I'm simply saying that the victory has been won because Christ is risen from the dead and with that you can take it to the bank. That's a cause of praise. I think Mary's praising God because she sees that with the coming of the Son of God these things are a certainty. And so we see this reversal. We see this, that God scatters the proud. He brings down rulers. He lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry. He sends the rich away empty-handed. And we see then, um, what are the limits or what, upon whom does God have his mercy? Well, we read in verse 50 that his mercy is for those who fear him. So now we see this limit. Who are those who find mercy in the eyes of God are the ones who fear the Lord. And so then we see this idea of God sets away the proud. That he, he humbles the proud. You should note, who are the proud? Well, it tells us, people who are proud in their hearts. That is, those who do not fear God. 
The ones who are not hungry, they are not afflicted. These are the ones who are self-sufficient, the ones who deny God and deny their need for them. They will not humble themselves and say, I'm lost. I need a Savior. These are the ones who say, I'm going to keep driving. I know how to find my way out of this mess. Thanks but no thanks. They deny God and they deny their need for Him. And we see that this is set in contrast with those who are responsive to God and those who are not. Daryl Locke, in his very fine commentary on the book of Luke, says this, Often the social circumstances of the powerful make them independent of and insensitive to God or to their fellow humans, while the poor are often more dependent on God. I know that's a rather sweeping statement, but oftentimes those who have much power and wealth and intellect are those who live their lives independent of and insensitive to the things of God. Not always. Broad sweeping statement. But God also deals with the unjust. The people who will trample, the powerful who trample God's people, God is going to deal with. These are the people who think they have authority, but they don't. It's derived authority. Remember we saw that in the book of Daniel. All through the book of Daniel. Daniel was simply saying to all the various kings that came his way, basically, you know, whatever power you have, it's not yours. It came from God above. Pilate himself says to Jesus, don't you realize I have authority to, to allow you to live or allow you to die? What does Jesus say? Whatever authority you have came from God. You have no authority. It's derived authority. These are people who think that their authority is their own. It is intrinsic within them. That they have achieved it all on their own. Rome would be a great example of this type of thinking where we are powerful and our power comes from with us and it is in the strength of our military, it is in the strength of our wisdom, it is in the strength of our leaders. We are powerful and you are weak. And God is like, no, no, I've raised you up and I will tear you down when it's my time. We see this all through. One of the great places we see this is in the book of Revelation. Certainly we see the so-called powerful um, elite, perhaps the beast who kills the people of God and yet at the same time when they die they are raised and seated at the right hand of the Father and they are seated with Christ in heavenly places and we see them being slaughtered and killed and yet when they are killed they are the victor they are the victorious ones so who has the power? Certainly we saw this again back in the book of Daniel. Remember that little horn? It was boastful in Daniel chapter 7. It was boastful and saying all sorts of blasphemous things. And then God speaks a word and it's done. <laughs> it's over with. And we see, the, and we see that, that the Son of Man in that same passage text is given a kingdom and a power and, and honor and riches and glory forever and ever. Amen. so powerful think that they have all of this on their own God says you will face true justice talk about the rich this is a challenging one for us because I will maintain that everybody in this room is rich there's not a poor person in here at least globally I mean, perhaps not in our particular economic situation, but did you have clean water this morning? Yeah, yeah, you did. You are a wealthy person. And you've got shoes? You are a wealthy person. You have decent clothes to wear, you know. So many people have clothes that are just damaged and with holes. Of course, we charge you more if the jeans you buy have holes in them, but ingenuity of the American capitalist system, right? But the rich here, I, I believe, is urging us to the rich here are those who keep their material possessions. Let me restate this. I think what Luke is doing is he's urging us to keep material possessions in perspective and use them to serve one another rather than to hoard them and to gain them for our own personal pleasure and desire but how do we use these things so that we might impact and affect the
kingdom of God. So we see this theme of reversal. She begins with, my soul magnifies the Lord. We end with how God is faithful to his covenant. He has helped us serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers and Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so God, who made promises thousands of years earlier, is still bringing about his purposes. And he is about to reverse the order of things. So that's... Our look, we'll close with this and we'll conclude with this. Reversal seems to be one of the main themes in this in this hymn. That is, in the coming of Jesus is the reversal of the world's value system. The last become first and the first become last. And those who thought were outside of the scope of, of salvation are the ones who receive salvation. We see that all of this comes about not because God looked upon Mary as some especially virtuous woman, but out of his grace. It was not out of her merit. We saw that a couple weeks ago, that it was not out of her merit. It was out of his mercy towards her. She realized that God is being is pouring out his favor upon me, even though I have nothing within myself to deserve this. And God comes to you the same way. Those of us who say, look what I've got, God. Let me give this to you. It always reminds me, we used to have a, when I was young, we had a cat. And from time to time, our cat would bring a dead bird to the door and say, oh, look what I got you. <laughs> I'm going, gross. <laughs> and we come to God and say, look what I got, God. And he's like, really? Don't bring me your stuff. My mercy towards you is not because you bring me something. My mercy towards you is because my mercy is towards you. So bring We also see that God is faithful to his covenant. And we see that he, how he helps us serve in Israel. But Jesus has made a new covenant. It is a new covenant in, in his blood. And that all who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that salvation comes to those who call out to him. And salvation is because the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all of your sin. God remembers that covenant as well. And you can say, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't work for me. I'm telling you that God is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham. That covenant was made thousands of years earlier. God is still faithful to the covenant that he has made through his son, Jesus Christ. And you can say, well, who am I that great God like that would have mercy upon me? Well, the humble are the ones who become the recipients of God's salvation. And I would urge you today to humble yourself and call upon the mighty name of God who does great and wondrous things and he will show mercy to you towards you and he will, he will save you and I tell you right now the course of your life will be reversed. Everything will change. You, will, you can say like Mary, from this point on everything will be different. Nothing will be the same because God does great and wondrous things. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Father, we are so gracious for the great things that you've done. Lord, we thank you that you are a mighty God, that you are a holy God, that you um, are not limited by our wisdom or our abilities or our strengths or even by our weaknesses, Lord God, and our frailties. But you are God and we are not. We thank you, Lord God, for this beautiful hymn that is so rich in knowing what you've done in history, but also in recalling all the things that you are going to do. You are not done yet. We look forward to the day, Lord God, when we will see you face to face. We look forward to the day when that trumpet will sound and you will descend with a mighty shout of victory and you will consummate the new kingdom and bring forth your glory and we will dine with you forever and ever. 
So Lord, we pray, it's a done deal. We can speak of that as a done deal. We do not need to wonder. I wonder if it's going to happen. Lord, we can speak of those future events as though they are already a reality because we live with a God who is faithful to his promises. So have mercy upon us, Lord God, and grant us your grace. We ask these things because Christ is Lord. Amen. All right, amen. Well, let's go ahead. Let's uh, bless one another, and then we will go. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.